Hello, this is Sasha, and this is a very special bonus episode. You all might remember us interviewing Jeff Abraham and Burke Kearns of the show Won't Go On, the most shocking, bizarre, and historic deaths of performers on stage. This is a cool book that was named by Playbill as one of the best books of 2019. Well, these two authors, Bert and Jeff, came on to Shut Up, I Love It earlier this year to talk about Jerry Lewis and his controversial masterpiece, The Day the Clown Cried. And in this episode, Stephen and I are interviewing Jeff and Bert about their book. So enjoy and check out the book. I think to start things off this little discussion, you, and I'll use the plural you, you mentioned in the prologue, the inception, the smallest impetus of the book came from one of you going to a uh, performance by an Elvis impersonator who then went on to die later that night. And that ultimately you describe in the prologue how that weaves its way into the book as it exists now. And I'm wondering if you can kind of take us through that process, you know? How did you get from there to where the book is now? What was the inspiration for The Show Won't Go On? Um, as you said, a little more than 15 years ago, I was out in Palm Springs and I saw an Elvis impersonator. And part of the show was a gentleman named Al DeVoren. And you don't know his name, but you know the, his famous saying, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Thank you and good night. Well, after the show, he was mulling around with some fans and some friends. And someone had asked him, Al, when are you going to write a book? You've done it all. He had been with Elvis and the Colonel since 1955. And he said, you know, I, I'll th I'm getting to it, I'll, but I have time. And I said goodnight to him at 10.30, Sunday morning, after breakfast, he was killed in a car accident. And it literally took my breath away. And I thought about all the times that people said, I should have gone to that show, and that person died before the show or right after the show. And I thought about all these performers who had died, you know, Elvis had died, his bags were packed for a tour. Hank Williams died coming from a show. John N. Whistle died with hookers and blow in his dressing room the night before the Who was supposed to do a reunion tour. So we had an idea for, about shows that won't go on. And then I sat with this title for 12 years until Bert reminded me that, you know what, that's a pretty good idea. He said, let's just do it. And then Bert. We did start by investigating and doing research on people who died on the way to a show, on the way home from a show, and perhaps some people who died on stage. When we got to more than a thousand entries, we realized we had to cut it down a bit. So we cut it down to performers who died on stage. And when we're talking about on stage, we're talking about nightclubs, opera houses, under circus tents, uh, anywhere there, where there was an audience, even radio audiences, uh, live television audiences, uh, today, social media, people die on social media. Just recently, there was a guy who had his own show uh, from China where he would sit with a, with a wheel and he would spin the wheel and whatever the wheel landed on, he'd eat. And so he ate some poisonous geckos because that's, that's what the wheel said, so he had to eat it. And he died on camera on streaming video and they had to knock down his door while they saw his body there online. Um, but in any case, we wound up with more than 500 cases of performers who died on stage. And we narrowed that down. The book f features, features about 60 stories, and we reference about 200 performers who died on stage. The problem that we had was that when we thought we were finished with the book, people kept dying on stage. We, we have a website, the, the showwon'tgoon.com, where we keep track of performers who died on stage this year. We've got about 20 so far. And about, there were about seven in the past eight weeks. They're dying to get in the sequel. 
Sorry. I just want to jump in. How do you even research that kind of stuff? You know, because I'm like, do they have a Google alert set for died on stage or do you? I do. Okay. Because you, you keep, you know, I know you're updating your Instagram and stuff like that with stories of, you know, performers who died on stage. But if we're even writing the book, how do you even accumulate the bulk of this information about all these dead performers? We did every imaginable <laughs> research you could think of, um, from friends, you know, dropping names to, you know, Bert and I have both have amazing reference libraries. We spent countless hours going through Daily Variety, Hollywood Reporter, you know, New York Times and LA Times and constant reference and constant research. And, and sometimes one article will say, oh, this was not the first person, someone else died. So we went to that person's obit. So, I mean, it was, an, it was really three years of research. I'm from Siberia originally, and even though there is one Siberian story, yeah, in the appendix, about a guy from Irkutsk, who lived there for 25, it's like Eastern Siberia and I'm from Western Siberia, but my family is from Irkutsk. Yeah, yeah, pianist, yeah, yeah. I think he just dropped dead elegantly, yeah, slung down the floor. And I was like, but there is like a more famous Russian story, because I remember being like in love when I was like 11 years old with this like Russian actor growing up in Siberia, Andrei Mironov. Y'all never heard of him, but uh, he's a big deal. Like my parents, I remember, told me he died on stage, like at a young age, I'm sure, from drinking too much because people in Siberia died from a lot of drinking constantly. And so he died like after a performance. And I remember my parents being like, well, that's the good, like that's the best way to go. So I wanted you to elaborate a little bit on the best way to go. Is it the best way to go for most of this, these performers? What did you find out? That was one of the things that we, we, we put out there when we interviewed survivors and witnesses and friends of people who died on stage. Did they take any comfort in the fact that these people died doing what they loved? And you know, for the most part, they would say, well, yeah, it's great that they, they weren't infirm or died after years in a nursing home, but you know, it would have been great if we had them around for another 20 years, like Dick Sean's son. You know, he, he, he said that, he goes, yeah, well, you know, he died doing what he loved, but he had another 20 years to go and he was at a, a, a place in his career where he could have done a lot more. Um, there are other performers, especially ones that are, that are far older, where you say, yeah, that's the way to go. The, the first story in our book is a woman named Jane Little. And she was little, she was four foot 11, and she played the largest instrument, the double bass in the Atlanta Symphony. And Jane was 87 years old, riddled with cancer and all these other other problems, but she found out that if she stayed with the, with the orchestra for one more season, she would get in the Guinness World Book of World Records for the longest tenure with a symphony orchestra. So she stuck it out, she got the Guinness World Record, and on the last performance of the season, in the encore, the last number, she collapsed in the middle of the song and died. And the name of the song that she was performing was There's No Business Like Show Business. And everyone in the orchestra, who are at least 20 years her junior, said, you know, that's great, what a way to go. So I guess when you, if you get to be that age, it's great. But if you're like in your 50s or, you know, 25 and you have a heart attack or you get electrocuted, you know, not so great. In that same vein, I wanted to ask, you know, these, some of these stories are very emotional. Some of them are, are rather gruesome. Did you, uh, as you were doing your research, interviewing people, did you, did you encounter any pushback from... Any family members or friends, people who, who 
didn't want to talk about these stories or thought that you shouldn't be putting their stories in the book? Did anybody react negatively toward, you know, you guys approach it in a very clinical way. And I wonder if some people might react to that negatively. I don't know. I was wondering if you could talk about that. We, even though the, the book has the word death in the title, we, we're very proud of the fact that these wonderful stories is a celebration of lives. So, so many pr- people were thrilled that this person's life story was being told, whether it be Dick Sean's son or the, the amazing Joe, the escape artist's son who was buried alive. So there were, we really didn't have pushback, but someone asked me this question the other day, and I remember trying to get a photo of somebody from a symphony orchestra and then they kind of like had to get it cleared and then they checked, saw what the book title was and they said, well, I don't know if we can give you the photo, but they were very cooperative providing information. But I would say 99%, everybody was thrilled that their story was being told. Yes, for the most part, people were excited about that. And that's what we try to do in the book, is to not just have a, a drumbeat of people plotting on the stage, but to really tell the story of, of performers' lives. It's their, their bios where rather than leading up to an Oscar or a Grammy, although they might get those along the way, it leads to this ultimate transcendent moment where the person dies on stage with an audience in front of them, surrounded by their colleagues, doing what they loved. And for many people, it's a glorious way. We spoke to one uh, musician from Nashville who was on stage with a, a guitarist who dropped dead while he was performing uh, Raspberry Beret by Prince in a Mexican restaurant. And he compared it to a Viking death. He said, you know, he, he died, and he said, I'm really, I'm, and he said, I'm honored to have been there when, when he died a Viking death. It's, what a way to go. When I saw that you, I know you for a few years, Bert. When I saw that you wrote a, co-wrote a book with this title, I was very curious because I, being Russian or whatever it is, I'm attracted to death and subjects of death. And, you know, I love Edgar Allan Poe and stuff like that. And I was like, how dark is it going to be? You know, how, how gruesome is it going to be? So I was attracted to the book by the shock value that's in the title. But when I was reading it, and I think we already talked about it a little bit, there was a lot of, I don't want to say humor, not to the expense of those people who died, but humor in like sort of irony, right? Like you talk about irony. Sure. Could you elaborate a little more on that? Well, you know, we had, we had a couple of agents when we were first trying to sell the book, and even publishers who said, you gotta make this funny. It's gotta be snarky, like Malcolm Forbes' book. They went that away. You gotta tell the, you know, make it funny. It's like, well, it's not funny. These are people who, who died, and they have family, and we've spoken to their family, their relatives, and they cry when they talk about someone who died 30 years earlier. But then again, when a woman is on stage and she drops dead after singing, please don't talk about me when I'm gone, yeah. and gets a standing ovation, that's funny. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ironic, and you have to laugh. We had a, a, a guy who um, was a, a community theater actor outside of Las Vegas, and he uh, had a heart attack during a matinee performance of a community theater show. It was brought was brought to the hospital. The name of the show was The Art of Murder. And of course, that got laughs all over the internet, and people were laughing about that. And we spoke to his son, and we said, you know, your father died in a show called The, you know, the Art of Murder. You know, people were laughing at that. And he goes, yeah, I know. I looked on, on Facebook and somebody said it sounded like a bad episode of Murder, She Wrote. And that's pretty funny. My father would appreciate that. So, yeah, there is, some of it is, is funny, yeah. You gotta laugh at it. As our old friend Joey Adams said, it's to laugh. 
you know, the, the death was the, um, the catcher in the title, I think, and it really brought people in. But as you read it, you realize it, it, the book was filmed with heart and humor, pathos, and it was, the, thank God for those ironic moments, because otherwise the book would have been rather um, repetitive. As someone said, you know, this could be the most boring book because everybody dies on the first page of every chapter. But when you have an ironic moment, you go, ah, it made it different. Because otherwise, and when Bert and I was reading one of the early drafts, and it read like, and he had a heart attack, and he had a heart attack. But it was these all these changes from people being electrocuted, assassinated, buried alive. It really made the book, no pun intended, come alive. I'm glad that you just mentioned uh, the first draft because I did want to ask a little bit if you guys could talk a little bit about your writing process. Uh, you know, anytime that two people are coming together to make one uh, work of art, I always find it interesting to hear how they work together. So if you guys wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that process. We're sort of like Elton John and Bernie Taupin. We don't sit in the same room and write together. We, we, we pass stuff back and forth. We speak on the telephone. Jeff might find, find a death. He'll send me a rough draft of it, or he'll send me an article he found. I'll knock out a version of the story, get it back to Jeff, and he'll say, what's the button? What, what is the punchline of the story? What is the way to end it? What makes it different? And we knock it back and forth like that. And then we argue, and then we kill each other, and then we say, no, this story isn't the most bizarre. This isn't the most shocking. Yes, it is, yeah, but it's the most historic. And then we have to narrow it down in the end. And uh, yes, we, you know, we're, we're, Jeff and I are both researchers, and we love going down those rabbit holes. And that's really the most fun part of this, because especially when we find stories that people accept as you know, c common wisdom, they think that's, that's what happened, because it's on Wikipedia, or they read it in a listicle on, you know, online. And we look into it, and we say, wait a minute, that never happened at all. This person didn't die on stage. For instance, we've got somebody, uh, one of the DJs that, w that, that interviewed us said, you know, I'm into jazz, and you don't have Lee Morgan's story in here. The great jazz artist Lee Morgan died on stage in Greenwich Village, the bebop trumpeter. And we're like, not so fast. <laughs> now, Lee's band was on stage. The quartet was waiting for him to walk onto the stage, but he was two steps away from the stage when his common-law wife said, oh, Lee, and then shot him through the heart. So he missed it by that much. And a lot of people miss it by that much. Uh, and there's a lot of people that, you know, we, that people think died on stage but, but hadn't. And part of it also is a lot of people go by that first newspaper story. Somebody writes that newspaper account, the next person writes the next story, they copy the, from the files, they go back to that first newspaper account. And th those first newspaper accounts are not always accurate because they're not, you know, they're first drafts. People, they're, they're rushing to a deadline, they've interviewed some people, they get the facts wrong. And we've cleared up a, a lot of misconceptions uh, through this book. We've rewritten history, really. The inaccuracy of uh, these accounts made me think of the specific story that I thought was one of my favorite deaths. I mean, if you read the book, they're your favorite deaths in this book, for sure. There's no other way to refer to them. But Dick Cavett's show, right? That part of the show was never, like it never aired, right? But you guys got to see it. But people would swear that they saw it on television because they knew enough about it that they had this false memory, which I thought was fascinating. Yes. So 1971, Dick Cavett is the host of an ABC talk show, and he has a guest on his show who dies during the taping. 
as Dick Cavett has said, the gods were very good to me because the person who died was a health health expert, a longevity expert. You couldn't ask for anything better. And it happened in 1971, and Dick Cavett has been talking about it ever since, and I bet you, you would too. And as recently as earlier this year, Cavett was on the Seth Meyers show, and Seth said, tell us this story, and Dick has devoted New York Times columns to it. So since 71, people have sworn they have seen it. In fact, Cavett has t told us about 20 people a year come up to him and said, the look on your face when that person died, he goes, were you in the audience that day? Because the show never aired. Well, Bert and I were very lucky that a dear friend of ours worked for Mr. Cavett, and he made a promise. He said, if you sell this book, we will allow you to be the first civilians, the first journalist to watch this episode. You can literally count the number of people on one hand who saw it. And there were so many urban legends. So it was always thought that the, the, the person who died, J.I. Rodale, the health expert, when, when, I should back up. When you die, you make a death rattle. It almost sounds like a snore. So when the interview was going on, you heard and it was always thought Cavett had said to Rodale, am I boring you? What a great line. It never happened. It had always thought that his last words were, I could live to 100, and then he died. Did not happen. The, the other interesting part of that, that Cavett mentioned to us when, when we interviewed him, and we, we saw it on the tape, is that when the, he realized this person was in distress, he turned to the audience and he said, is there a, and he was about to say, is there a doctor in the house? But he realized that if he said that, he'd get a laugh, because that's like the worst thing you can say. But in any case, Dick Cavett did catch himself when he's about to say, is there a doctor in the house? And he said, is there um, someone that can help him? Because he did want to get that laugh. And so that was a, a very interesting story. Now, you guys do have a chapter kind of about delayed deaths or uh, deaths that take several years to catch up to the performer, which seems a little bit to stretch the, the conceit of the book, but I, I wonder why you guys wanted to include those. Are they just stories that you liked so much that, that you felt you needed to include them? All right. 1974, a Dick Clark oldies review in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Jackie Wilson, the greatest performer. They called him Mr. Entertainment. Michael Jackson got all his moves from Jackie Wilson. Elvis Presley got his moves and his singing style from Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson is on stage singing his signature song, Lonely Teardrops. Lonely Teardrops, my heart is crying, my heart, my heart, and he says my heart, grabs his chest, falls <laughs> over backwards with a heart attack, slams his head against the stage and has a stroke. That's a pretty sensational, bizarre, and shocking collapse on stage. He, went, he wound up being in a coma in and out for the next eight or nine years. Uh, it was eight years before he finally died. We tell his story because of that, and then in those eight years, many people connected to Jackie Wilson and that, and that incident wound up dying on stage. The other uh, person that we added to that was Curtis Mayfield, another rhythm and blues star. He was, going, he was on stage uh, at an outdoor concert in Queens, New York, when a gust of wind knocked over all of the rigging and the speakers onto his back, and he was paralyzed uh, from the neck down, and he lived another nine years before he died from that. So we did, we did uh, call that chapter The Long Goodbyes, because it was a quite spectacular and, and, and a tribute to the, both those entertainers. I thought it was cool that you didn't include any athletes, fighters, or racers, 
or Toreadors, I mentioned specifically, or any people who are very likely to die on stage. Although you did bring up one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest professions in show business is conductor of an orchestra. Being an orchestra conductor is more dangerous than being a gangster rapper when it comes to dying on stage. In the United States, there has been one hardcore rapper who died on stage. Not from a drive-by, not from any sort of beef, but from hypertension. Had a heart attack in the middle of his rap and, and dropped dead. But we've got dozens of orchestra conductors who died at the podium. And we found that it actually is the most hazardous occupation in show business, mostly because most of them are between the ages of 50 and probably 75. They have to deal with orchestras around the world. They travel a lot. They eat airplane food. They don't watch their cholesterol. A lot of them drink. They have fiery tempers. And then once they get up on that podium and they start conducting and they get into that, that passage in the piece where they're really going with the baton, there they go. And so that was a, a surprise to us when we were doing the research. And also they shake their head a lot. Don't you think like, I mean, I love watching conductors. Like, like I have a crush on all of them. Because I don't know, it's just like a man doing weird stuff, like being seen by other people who are like, yes, I don't know, it's, there's something ingrained in uh, the way I was brought up probably in Russia. But it is, it is interesting because they, like, they shake right their heads so much, like you know something is going to snap inside their you know, neck. I don't want to give away the whole book, but we do have an oboist who died on stage in San Francisco. And he was rather young, and he was a youthful guy. Uh, he was performing an oboe concerto when suddenly he started to sway and started to fall over. And he, as he sank to the stage, he lifted his arm up, and he held the oboe up so a violinist could grab the oboe before he fell. And we found later that the oboe is the most it's the hardest instrument to play. You've got to blow so much air in to get a sound that it can cause a brain hemorrhage, and that's what apparently happened to this guy. Blew wow. himself to death. Uh, well, so we don't want to give away all the deaths in the book t uh, tonight because we are moving copies tonight, everybody. But I was wondering, are there, do, do you guys have any favorite deaths that just for any reason didn't make the book? The one, there is one death that didn't make the book that we've written about separately. We contribute stories to uh, a website called pleasekillme.com. Uh, that's it's, it's an offshoot of Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain's book, Please Kill Me, which is stacked up right in the center aisle here. And probably it's the death of Kathy Wayne. She was born Kathy Warrens. Kathy Wayne was the first Australian woman to die in the Vietnam War. She was 19 years old. She was on stage. She was performing at a U.S. Marine base at an officer's club with a group called Sweethearts on Parade. She was singing a song. Her fiancé was the drummer when suddenly she fell over on stage as her pink blouse began to billow with red blood. Nobody knew what happened. As it turned out, a, a Marine was trying to kill his commanding officer from outside he was shooting through the screen door with a silencer. He missed his commanding officer and killed Kathy Wayne. And she went down and became uh, an historic figure in Australia. And she didn't make the book. I, th I think there's a lot of fascinating deaths that we're not going to talk about, which I'm upset because I want to talk about all of them. I wrote Deborah Gale Stone, 1974, very sad 
Would you tell us the story? In all its years at Disneyland, there's, there have been many deaths, there's been suicides, many suicides, people jumping off the Mickey and Friends parking structure. There was a, a knifing, there was, there was a murder right in front of uh, Snow White's castle. This was a, that was a very sad murder. Um, a, a kid was walking al- a happy Well, it was the happiest place on earth. This, this kid was walking around the Matterhorn and he grabbed a woman's butt and she happened to be the girlfriend of a gang member who chased him from the Matterhorn to um, Snow White's castle and stabbed him. They called the ambulance and the, the kid died before the ambulance left the parking lot. How old is this kid, five or 25? He was like 25, but okay. they put him in the goofy ambulance. And that was the ambulance that went doot, 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 and it went about two miles an hour and, and it, was a, it was a comic ambulance. That later they changed all the, the rules for amusement parks after that. You have to put somebody in an actual ambulance to get them out of there. They, they call all Disneyland workers who interact with the public uh, cast members. And only one performer has been killed in Disneyland. And that was a, a, a girl, she was a teenager named Deborah Gale Stone. And she was a hostess at the America Sings attraction. The America Sings attraction was the audience sits in a theater and different stages revolve around them and Burl Ives' voice sings and people sing songs about America. Uh, she got trapped between the walls and was, uh, I think the official, the official uh, medical term was squished um, and, and, and she, was, she was killed. Oddly, only, there has only been one death of a performer in Disney World. And this is in Florida, where there's been someone was was eaten, a kid was eaten by an alligator, and people are always killing each other down in Florida. <laughs> Only one person was killed, and that was a a performer in a, a parade, and he was dressed up as Pluto, the dog, when he was run over by a float, and it was sort of like ran over a dog in the in the road. And Disney World was sued, uh, was fined seven thousand dollars for the death of Jose Ruiz. Hate to bring everybody down, but it is a book about. It. Death. Uh, I want to ask you guys one more question. It's a slightly morbid question, but this is a slightly morbid book. So I'm wondering, you know, you can go out any way you choose. How, how would you choose? I think I want to go out old age. I think um, dying on stage, I think that I'm, I will leave that to other people. Um, I think, you know, the great Carl Walenda, who we end our book with, and the Walendas were the epitome of the show must go on. This is a man who walked, attempted to walk across two buildings in Puerto Rico. He fell to his death 125 feet. He always said, I'd rather die on the wire than in bed. And when we interviewed his grandson, he said, I'd rather die in bed with my grandchildren around me than on the wire. So I don't think I need to be so brave. So old age is good enough for me. I would say there's nothing like going with a faulty microphone. <laughs> We've got several stories in the book about people who've done just that. Touch that hot mic. We'll save that for the, if any, there are any rock and roll fans here. It's always been believed that the first rock and roll star to die by electrocution on stage was a guy named Les Harvey. He was the guitarist for a Scottish band called Stone the Crows. And he was performing in Swansea, Wales. Uh, he had just quaffed a beer. I think he had his guitar in one hand, grabbed a, 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 an ungrounded microphone, and was blasted into the 27 Club. He's probably the least famous of the 27 Club, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, Janis Joplin, um, Jim Morrison. But he's the only one to have died on stage so far. We found out through our research that actually someone had died three years earlier on stage by being electrocuted. 
And the answer is in the book. And this is it for the bonus episode of Shut Up, I Love It. Thank you, Bert and Jeff, for having Stephen and I moderate the panel. Thank you, Stories, Books, and Café, for providing the space. Thank you, Elizabeth Salute, for artwork. Thank you, Carlton Gillespie, for promo videos. Thank you, Andrew Hayworth, for music. And thank you for listening. <laughs>